Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. How's it going, Matt? It's going quite well. I'm kind of excited. There are many new things coming to the race at Silverstone, and we're going to talk about them today. Yeah, and we've got breaking news and everything. Full disclosure, it's Tuesday afternoon here, recording in the UK. Tuesday is kind of like my my day off, because I, I work on a Sunday, so Tuesday substitutes for that me and the lovely lady wife we tend to go for a a walk in the morning and this morning our walk took us past a pub that was not it's not open it's not been open for a while so we went oh that pub's back open again so we wandered in we had a pint with some chips and some onion rings but matt here's the killer they let you order beer on an app so you literally just have to you sat down you just press a button and then more beer arrives I love that. Mm. Here in New York, you've been able to take, uh, you've had beer and cocktail and wine takeaways, so you can just walk off with your booze. So full disclosure, I have had a lovely, lovely British lunch. Uh, we are also joined by our token Dutch analyst, Jules Sagers. How's it going, Jules? Thanks, Spanners. Doing well, doing well. Excited to be back. I see, uh, because you got some heat for being a, a Dutch panelist but not supporting max verstappen i see some changes in your background yeah i uh, i collected some uh, some stuff from my son who is <laughs> obviously a max verstappen fan yeah and uh who uh, angrily walks out of the room once uh, max verstappen uh, crashes or uh, whatever happens to him and um so uh, yeah collected some stuff and show some support <laughs> so for him it's over once verstappen's out that's the end of the race oh yeah it's, i need to comfort him and everything yeah yeah he's passionate <laughs> I tell you what, that's interesting speaking of who the kids are fans of because my boy started out as a Max Verstappen fan because a uh, Red Bull employee who will remain nameless infiltrated our family by giving him like one of those end of season books. So he was just sat being brainwashed night after night going through this Red Bull annual. And uh, obviously by osmosis, you tend to 
support who Papa supports as well. So he's in this weird mix. Like, he just celebrates everyone now. If Perez wins, he's delighted. Lewis wins, he's happy. Verstappen wins, he's happy as well. That's a, that's the best thing to have, I guess. But um, he's, he's conscious of uh, of my more balanced support for uh, for the driver, <laughs> so he gets in my face every time uh, uh. Max Verstappen gets pole or a win now. Well, I suppose in Dutch schools as well, they give out uh, Red Bull number 33 caps and model cars. Yeah, and they hand out uh, Red Bull cans for breakfast. So Exactly, yeah. and, and, orange, and orange shirts as well. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed. With the kind permission of our better halves, we aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Well, uh, breaking news today, Matt, which is Australia has been cancelled. And we need to be very clear, it is just the Grand Prix. We're not cancelling all of Australia unless anyone takes the time to scroll through Australia's old tweets. Yeah, and not just the Grand Prix. The MotoGP as well has been cancelled. No and I only bring cares. that up. No one cares. Because they were going to originally do a date swap with Formula One so that the uh, Melbourne race would now be taking place, I think, in November, and the MotoGP race would be moving to March, which is when we would normally see it to kick off the season. So I had a reason to bring it up. It's not just because Kyle told me to. <laughs> but the main reason I think that Australia has erred on the side of caution is because it's a street circuit, so you need a lot more advance notice. So back in 2020, you remember the before time in the, yes. in the long, long ago cancelling that at the last minute obviously was a big burden because on a street circuit you have to do so much city infrastructure and planning so they've made the call early and then they can concentrate on 2022 it's a shame though because with all the track changes they'd made i was looking forward to it but australia have been very very cautious with covid they've controlled their borders and i think one of the key reasons is any team going into australia would need to quarantine wouldn't they for two weeks and then, yeah. and then I don't know if they had to quarantine on the way home as well. Make it very um, impractical. Yeah, well, you're correct. Contractually, they hit a deadline and Australia was not able to give the guarantees they wanted. So they agreed mutually to move on. But the good news is I think the race is on till 25 or 26 under contract. So it will be back. So, and Yeah, go on. I was just going to say, really, it's an interesting case study because they have done a good job sort of controlling the thing, but they've not done a good job with the vaccinations. And that really, I think, is ultimately the hang up. They can't have the new people coming in and not be quarantined, as you mentioned. Right. Which which we spoke about with uh, Uncle Joe a few weeks back. And the conclusion was there would probably be a, a double circuit of the Americas in Austin to make up for that. But Jules, should we be replacing these races? Because we're looking at a 23 calendar race uh, sorry a 23 race calendar and the FIA have said that's what they want despite the cancellations but is it a bit much I mean I grew up with 16 races and, and then 20 races seems like a lot I thought I wanted more but at what point do we have too much ice cream and full bellies yeah, that's a question. I, I also grew up with 15, 16 races and, and, and then th those were just really special weekends and uh, moving to 23 and, and uh, early reports today are that, that uh, FIA want to, uh, want to replace it to still uh, get to those 23 races. Um, it, it takes away the, the, the special thing of a Grand Prix weekend and uh, 20 would be my, my max and, but 
I think replacing it won't be that easy because uh, you're at the end of the season. Uh, Brazil is, uh, I think, on a code red. Abu Dhabi, yeah. I think, is a code red right now. Turkey is a code red. So yeah. I, I'd be surprised if if they manage something uh, that also fits like traveling schedules. This is it, Matt. You know, we've lost Singapore. We might lose Turkey, which Turkey itself was a substitute for Canada. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or Singapore, I forget one of them. Yeah. So we're losing now the substitutes for the substitutes. And uh, yeah, so I, do, I just do wonder, like, do we need to desperately scramble to fill the schedule? But then the, the devil's advocate argument, I guess, is we kind of need to know in a championship this close, we need to know how many races there are going to be. That, that we can't get to five races from the end with uh, Hamilton 30 points up. And then suddenly go, oh, no, there's only two races now, because that won't be fair on the Stappen fans. No, not at all. And, and you are overlooking, <laughs> while making your subtle dig, <laughs> you are overlooking the much more obvious point that Formula One lost a truckload of money last year, yeah. even with the TV contracts. They're contracted for 23 races. Every race they don't deliver costs them money. They're bleeding money from marketing and sponsors, because obviously everybody is, because of the pandemic. So they they will absolutely want to make every effort to hit the number they've agreed to, to make the money they need to keep the sport rolling. Now, where it gets fun for me, I think, is now we can talk about, well, if they're going to replace it, what are they going to replace it with? I know you say um, uh, Uncle Joe there is going with uh, yeah, double going with, at Coda. Yeah, double Austin, um, yeehaw. But I've seen, for example, Indianapolis also thrown into the mix as a possible second race in the U.S. And I think that could be kind of fun, even if the tires don't explode. Oh, do you, Jules, is that your yeah. is that your F1 era with the uh, the failed tire exploding U.S. Grand Prix? Yeah, very much so. I think I I was watching for over 10 years by then, but I do remember that race. And uh, yeah, of course, we don't want that any anymore, but the the whole uh, reason for them exploding was the the banked uh, Indy 500 yeah. uh, corner. And, and it was so spectacular. And of course, the V10s added to that uh, with the whole sound experience, but it was such a cool corner and then just slinging onto the straight. It would be cool to have that back if they dare to. Okay. And I'll tell you what, Matt, this, uh, this brings me to uh, a listener email that we got through. Okay. Uh, we got through because it's a, uh, Feedback at mistapex.net. And it's from one of your lot, Matt. It's from one of your lot, one of you Americans. So a lot has been made of how the, the US audience that have found us, uh, us, as in F1, have a lower attention span. These younger fans, these American fans, they have a lower attention span. And it's quite interesting that Jules, you know, makes that point because F1 felt like they really got hurt by the Indianapolis Grand Prix. And now there's a big push by Liberty to, to really appeal to the F1 fans. And this will lead us later on to sprint races. But let's, let's just do this email from uh, Jacob, who says, hang on, I'm, I don't read and write so good, so give me a second. Uh, the most important thing about the Norris-Perez incident is that allowing Norris, Norris to push Perez off would discourage overtaking. It doesn't matter what the rules are usually interpreted as, uh, it needs to be fair. F1, he says, has a huge problem with the races lacking overtaking. As a new American F1 fan, it's clear to me that the sport can be pretty boring. Okay, hurt, but that is a feature, not a bug, uh, can be pretty boring. F1 needs a big change 
to encourage overtaking. Your own podcast regularly laments that changes to the cars will probably not encourage overtaking much because dirty air is dirty air. Most Americans will drop F1 in a couple of years, insists Jacob, if it doesn't get significantly more exciting. If you don't believe me, look at the TV ratings for soccer. It's a shame because F1 has really cool aspects. Um, Thank you very much, Jake. Sorry, Jake finishes there by saying, I'd ask you what you want out of racing and to consider incentives, the incentives that the racing rules create i mean it is interesting matt americans do have a different mindset to say the british northern european markets um nascar for example you know your your competition cautions for new f1 fans getting their head around perhaps the pace of f1 i actually agree with this you know we had a big discussion about whether the stewards were right at the weekend and i kind of i think i put myself out on a limb over the last couple of years saying we should let the outside car have racing room Looking at the big boys, though, Matt, Medland, Will Buxton, they've all come out eventually and said the same thing. They must listen to us. I think I think they absolutely must. And, and I think they, <laughs> they pay more attention to us than we'd like to think that they do. Um, without being condescending, I to think me. a lot of problem, no, to our, our listener email. Oh, that's email. fine. Yeah, yeah, you, that's fine. Yeah. As long as you're not insulting uh, me, that's, I'm good. No, no, no. Without being condescending, I would say the biggest problem for your noob Formula One fan is simply the learning curve. They're going to say the race in Austria was boring and that excitement equals overtakes. Yeah. And I would say this is the same thing as saying a calculus class is boring when you haven't had second year algebra. Well, yeah, because you're not necessarily understanding everything that's going on. And you yourself has said that, that assigning the lad to monitor the timing has greatly yes. increased the anxiety and excitement and adrenaline you feel during a Grand Prix. Yeah, all American fans just need an 11-year-old to monitor the timing screens for them and look at those subtle changes. And happily, I think the labor laws probably allow you to hire one cheaply over here, but all I digress fine. with the joke. Um, so I think that's part of it. But I would also... I do have this thing. I think the excitement isn't just in sheer number of overtakes. I think the excitement is in the tightness of the battle. How long do we see car B trying to get by car A? How long can that effort be sustained until one or the other makes a mistake? Now, obviously, we disagree on the, the outside rules. But I also want to point out that the rules say an IndyCar, which is the closest thing that most Americans will have seen to Formula One. The rules on passing like that are very, very different. You're not allowed to make any kind of a reactive move if you see someone in your mirrors, for example, an IndyCar, and you will absolutely get penalized if they think you have. So so, so something like moving under braking. Yeah. Oh, no, that's an absolute no-no. Because a lot of times- on Raikkonen, for example. Because I don't think he got penalized for that in the end. No, I think they judged Raikkonen was too far away for it to oh, okay. made it. Yeah, okay. In other words, it, it, it almost looked like to me Russell was expecting him to show up there. And then when he wasn't there, he was moving back <laughs> to the racing line. Okay, Jules, I'm going to make a rule and just say, right, uh, in F1, if you get into the braking zone and there's a car on your outside, you've got to expect, uh, you've got to leave him room. You've got to expect that he's going to fight. Is that so bad? Like if that's consistent, surely that encourages racing. Yeah, but then then you make the drivers the judge of what is enough room. And um, I think what happened on, on Sunday was Perez, the first incident, Perez went for, for a move, uh, which he should have backed out of. 
because there wasn't any any more space. But the reason they don't is they think, oh, but I'm going to lose so much ground if I put, yeah. uh, put the brake pedal down. And um, by the way, but- I agree. I agree that he should have backed out of that. I agree that that move, it, it wasn't likely to succeed. But I think the kind of broader point is we see cars just being run off the road all the time, Matt. And I, it looks like the tide is changing. In the media, everyone is backing the steward's decision. Massey is backing the steward's decision. And in fact, I would be very surprised if that general kind of ethos didn't come from Michael Massey. So the tide is changing on that. Yeah, it is. And and as I said, I think you could have a reasonable standard as to when you as the inside car have to allow room to the outside car. I think the problem is right now in Formula One, the definition of alongside is quite literally one's front wing alongside the rear axle. And and Christian Horner, who you would think would be like, yes, they should penalize Norris greatly and they should give Perez (laughs) three extra minutes on his time, um, actually said he thought it was a racing incident. And he's a bit concerned about this precedent because what he worries about is Verstappen doing it all the time every race. No, you know how uh, in, in, in racing, you know, the late lunge to the inside. Yeah. And then the person turns in and crunches the wing and then it's oh, but it's the outside driver's fault because they should have known that person was there. Why didn't you leave space on the apex? Well, he's concerned that it's going to be kind of like dives in football. Someone will see that they are close ish, yeah. drive deep into the braking zone, get the front wheel just alongside, <laughs> drive off on the outside, and immediately be on the radio. I was run out of yeah, room. Yeah, yeah, My yeah. opponent needs a five second so, penalty. Uh, Paul Ricard, that's an issue. Turn four, Austria, that's not an issue because you lose out massively getting on the gravel. Yeah, I see that argument. I see that argument. But I think, um, you know, Jules is saying, how far how far is it well it's a car's width just leave them a car's width and and you're all right yep and i want to make another point um with the whole uh uh penalty point system um i think today was uh, reports came out with michael massey being quoted uh drawing comparisons comparisons to the the penalty point system that we regular people have in in uh, for driving our cars okay like you know you get driver license points and that and that was the first time i thought like wait a minute is this another move by fia to make formula one more road relevant and bring it closer to us regular people like see uh, like you know, <laughs> F1 drivers are role models, and if they keep crashing into each other and and do stuff that doesn't belong on on the regular roads, so we punish them. And so, like, you understand what I'm saying? I don't know if it's the same in um, in the Netherlands, but it is eerily close to the British standard driving license system. So, if you get caught speeding on a motorway, you'll get like three points. If you get twelve points within. I think it's two years, you actually get a year ban. So I, I don't think you're wrong there. That is very similar to the British system. Yeah, yeah, that's the same over here. I was going to say, have you ever bothered to look at the fines they assess for speeding? It's more like Norway, where they take a percentage of your total annual income and, and, and they do it and all that money goes to the FIA for spending. Matt, is Jacob... Correct. The uh, American, these new American F1 fans are going to get threaders with F1 if there's not more overtaking. I mean, geez, I'm looking, I'm looking at the last few races and they've been pretty good. Even Paul Ricard was pretty exciting. Baku was tense. Monaco, eh. but I don't know. I, I, I'm going to give more credit to our new American F1 fan friends that they are appreciating this sport for what it is and not looking for 
an open wheel NASCAR. Yeah, well, I think as with any any anything that de- develops a new following, some people will decide it's not for them yeah. and move on. But I think you will capture a significant percentage. I think the rules and the cars are changing to allow closer battling for longer. Yeah. And I think that's really going to be the answer to the question. That, and of course, you simply learn more about the sport, so you appreciate the nuances more, and that makes it more exciting. All right. I want to talk to Jules about the Orange Army. Okay, so we've talked about the American fans. So let's talk about the, the Dutch fans because it was odd. It was really odd to hear that kind of football carnival carnival atmosphere. And you could hear it on the TV cameras. There's dancing. There's flares. I can live without the flares, by the way. But my goodness, for all we talked about the Dutch fans, they're, they're bringing something completely different to Formula One. It would be very easy for us to gatekeep and say, well, that's not very, that's not how F1 fans should be. We've been here since 1966. But man, the Dutch, they're being all Dutch up in F1's face, aren't they? Yeah, it's, I think I explained it before uh, on one of the podcasts. Um, it's a bit of a cultural thing. Uh, Dutch sports fans are uh, party people. Uh, uh, they, they like to, to celebrate. They like to have a party. They like to go on the streets in, uh, like, uh, in, in a queue and, and, and walk towards the football stadiums. That's mainly where it's from. So, right. for instance, last uh, Holland Euros game against uh, Czech uh, uh, the Czech Republic. Oh, in... sorry, Jules. That was so long ago. I can't remember. Yeah, Ho- Holland uh, being as part of the Euros. It's just so long ago. I can't even. I'm trying to scramble back in my mind and remember what that was like. Yeah, it's not much to remember. <laughs> but uh, so uh, once uh, COVID allowed, they flew to to Budapest where the game was, and they organized these 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 mass uh, uh, walks up to the stadium and. Even if they don't have tickets, it's just it's just like a get together, a celebration. Everything's orange. There's music. There's act, and so this this it's not mainly about the sport. Of course, there are Max Verstappen fans, Formula One fans, but it's also about the experience, and yeah. uh, it's like uh, a, a day out. And man, th- those guys such... were living it. They were absolutely yeah. living it on on race day, and it, it was it was hard actually, Matt. Even as like a you know a Hamilton fan, it was hard to begrudge them their day because it it so seemed like it was going to be their day. Yeah, no, it, 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 it did. And I personally feel kind of bad for Lando because he got out of his car and he says, look at all the people in orange here to support me. And I was like, oh, Lando, they may not all be here just for you, I, I think. <laughs> so, Jules, are the Dutch fans going to be, they're here for the long run because I think Verstappen is going to be a stalwart in F1. He's, he's going to be an F1 legend, I think, even if it's only one title, two titles or 10 titles. The, the Dutch fans are going to be here to stay. And I think they've, they've, they're going to change F1 fandom forever. Yeah, maybe. It's like you said, I think F1 fandom until now was a fairly sterile, uh, quiet type of crowd. And uh, yeah, they're just bringing it and uh, got to hand it to them. It's, it's a whole different <laughs> atmosphere. And, you know, Austria, is, is, it's not too expensive. You can uh, do it by a one-day drive. Uh, Spa in Belgium, of course, is their territory. Yeah. Now, the Dutch Grand Prix, uh, I think it was sold out three times. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, I think it brings a lot of atmosphere. And, you know, television broadcasters, they know this. They put the microphones before the stand. So that's why, <laughs> what you mentioned, you hear the, the cheers. And the- I think we're in for a, a wall of orange in Northern Europe, aren't we? So we can look at Spa, uh, the Austrian Grand Prix, obviously uh, Zandvoort, and then Hungary. I guess is pretty close. 
Yeah, it's everything that's in in a, in a doable in a one day drive. So that could be could be Budapest, but uh, you know the German Grand Prix. Yeah, uh, Silverstone will be a different thing because that's of course flying or by train. And and I I don't think this is bad. I I don't really mind. I, I, I it's intimidating. I think if you're the British driver going up against Max Verstappen, there is probably you know a, a tenth or two put behind you by that crowd because every British driver has said at Silverstone they get that little extra bump from the crowd and if you go to Silverstone by the way in case there's any British people out there thinking oh those unruly Dutch supporting the Dutch driver Silverstone is and has been for a decade Matt a Hamilton fest and if you think Hamilton is hated go and look at the stands at Silverstone he is beloved by British F1 fans. No, I just love it that we're leaving Monza and Ferrari out of this conversation. Yeah, no. Because have you ever been to Monza when a Ferrari no, wins? But I've seen, I've seen like the crowds there, and and they get behind that. And I like that they get behind their team as much as yeah. getting behind a driver. Because when was the last Italian driver? Liuzzi. Uh, do you, well, Giovinazzi right now on the grid. Oh yeah, no. only Italian. Sorry. Sorry, Gio. Sorry, Gio fans. But yes, obviously, they're much more behind Ferrari. Anyway, all adds to the, the flavor and color of F1. But mainly, we've concluded from this. Oh, go on, Jules. You first. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it, it's now the, probably the Dutch, the, the Orange Army, you know, uh, putting this out there. But I think just like in football, other other crowds will pick this up. I think mm-hmm. maybe Silverstone will, will answer with uh, with a much louder and maybe also the the, the, yeah. the flares and everything you know that's it that's what i want to call for guys you've seen the orange army if you're at silverstone like i don't want to encourage flares because they seem kind of dangerous to me but we've got to outdo we've got to outdo the dutch the dutch have set the standard for supporting their driver i think we've got uh, we've got some living up to do at silverstone I hope the Liberty marketing people are listening to this because they could be encouraging it very easily with a little extra work. Have we got, we've not got Suzuka this year, have we? It's, it's not on it's the still calendar. On. Is it yeah, still I think on? it's still on. Yeah. Man, they're going to get behind Yuki. That could be crazy. Have you ever heard like, you know, like uh, East Asian crowds at football? They're crazy. Yeah, let's let's have some of that. Hopefully we get to Suzuka this year. All right. They're chirpy. They're a bit chirpy. <laughs> Moving on. All right, let's keep the uh, the new American audience happy with some sprint races, Matt. We've given them a whole nother race. I'm joking. I know. I think it's a minority of American fans because in our Slack group, we've got so many Americans and they are so well informed on, on, uh, on F1 and they're patient and they understand the history of F1 as well. If there is a minority of new fans that need more excitement, then Liberty is catering to them with the sprint races. The moaning's gone. The moaning's gone. It's out of the way. I'm not whinging about it anymore. I am against it. I was against it. And I I will stand by that unless it's brilliant and then I will change my mind. But I don't actually understand how it works. So how is our weekend at Silverstone going to unfold? All right. Uh, I will start with the basic facts. The first practice will be the first practice. Teams will be allowed one less set of tires, which is already interesting because they're going to have to pick a compound to race on and a compound to qualify on, but they may not be able to get both. They won't be able to get both drivers on all three flavors of tire. I don't understand of- any of that. I've, all right. I'm lost already. What? All right. <laughs> Normally you're only allowed a certain number of tires per session, the way it works out. And Four that's been reduced time. by one. So, so now only three at a time, uh, two at a time. It was three. Okay. 
and then we'll have qualifying. So you get a one hour practice and then qualifying. The good news for you in the UK yeah. and Europe is that these will now be later sessions. So you should be able to see them on your telly and they're not going to happen while you're at work. Uh, hang on. Okay. So right. When's qualifying? I don't have the schedule yet. No, but, but I like believe- on Friday. It's on Friday. It's, it's taking the place of what we used to call practice two. So there's practice one and then qualifying. Right. Okay. That's going to be nuts. Because <laughs> like one, it's going to be great. One team is going to like stuff up FP1. A driver is going to put it in a wall or they're going to take the wrong setup uh, direction, Jules. And you're just going to find people going into now what is real qualifying blind. Yeah, especially because uh, first practice on Friday is still only just an hour. And so that's, oh, that's uh, yeah, that's it's. I think it's okay. two thirty in the afternoon, and then at six o'clock uh, it's qualifying. Okay, so we're going to have evening qualifying, but is that the real qualifying, Matt? And so, what? How, hang on a minute. So we've lost P three altogether. Saturday is just the qualifying sprint race. No, no. sorry, man. No, that's okay. You can go ahead. There will be a practice Saturday before the sprint race. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a uh, it's a lunchtime uh, second practice on sa- Saturday, and then uh, uh, Formula Two time uh, uh, esque uh, start of sprint race at right. uh, at four thirty. Okay, so we've got free practice one. It's an hour. You'd best get some good running in there. Then you've got, I guess, pre qualifying. I'm going to call it pre qualifying because the sprint race doesn't carry any points. So the sprint race is qualifying. I hate to tell you that sprint race does carry points for the top no, three. No, they've not done that. They've, they have, have done they? that. Idiots. They so have. the championship could be decided by one of these sprint races. Uh, it, well, many things can happen in the course of a season, and no. that might be one of them. That is fully dumb. I'm not happy with that. I didn't realize that at all. I thought they'd settled on this just deciding the grid order, and I was just about placated. But no, there's points. How, how many points? How many points? It's not a lot. Okay. It's like three, two, and one or something like that. Well, then why bother, Jules? Why bother at all? Let's uh, make things more entertaining. Maybe this is for the American fans. <laughs> okay, so how am I doing on my pledge, Matt, to remain ungrumpy about this? You have failed <laughs> miserably in my entirely, entirely how, how dare uh, you. <laughs> opinion. Okay. Uh, but it's interesting. You know, you bring up the points for the sprint race, but then what about the point for the fast lap? I mean, I don't love that either. If you like the point for the fast lap, this is really not that much different. Okay, okay, fine. You're right. If if it's weighted like that, it's not too heavy. I can live with it. The chances of the title being decided by three points is reasonably low. Okay, so we decide the grid for the sprint race is decided on Friday. Then they have a practice session, so they've got a bit more running. Now, that is where they would traditionally do qualifying laps. Of course, they don't need to do that at all. So now, on Saturday, it's all about the race pace. So forget about your fastest lap scoreboard. That doesn't matter on Saturday anymore because they're all now preparing for, uh, for, for the sprint grid. And in the sprint race, how long is that? What tyres can you use? And I assume there's no pit stops, Jules. Um, I think pit stops aren't, uh, um, they're allowed, but you wouldn't have have to to, because it's 17 laps at Silverstone. So I presume they're just going to put on the softest tires, go uh, flat out for 17 laps and, uh, and see what happens. And some of the drivers say it's going to be a procession. 
some of the others uh, say, uh, well, you know, if, if we can go flat out, it should make things more interesting, less tactical. Um, I think the one thing you don't want is get a bit um, uh, brave and uh, and do a, do a dive bomb or think I'm going to go flat out. And, and you crash and that's your Sunday race done pretty much as well. So I'm curious to see if, is it going to be that oh, balls out sprint race, go for it, or is it going to be extra cautious to, to get a, a good position for, for Sunday? Well, this is where I think it starts to get a little bit intriguing because uh, depending upon the tires they bring and the tires, you still have the same uh, rule, the tire rule, your Q2 time. What? The tires you set your fastest time on in Q2 on Friday are the tires you race with in the sprint race on Saturday. But it doesn't oh, affect okay. Sunday. Sunday's a free tire choice. Um, I actually, you know, congratulations on finding the thing that I wasn't <laughs> able to look up before the show. I, I um, believe that's true. I believe that everybody has a free tire choice on Sunday now. Um, which is actually kind of great. But yeah. it does bring up the fact that we've seen a lot of races where the soft tires will start to go off or between laps you know, 12 to 15, and um, the race is 17 laps long. So we could still have some sort of interesting tire offsets, and especially if you're talking about just going, you know, pedal down, then, then we might even see accelerated degradation on the soft tires. So people who, who get to choose the medium tires might have something to gain. And as you say, if I'm Norris, I might be much more tempted to chuck it up the inside on a Hamilton or Verstappen or Perez yeah. than the other way around where I'm like, I just want to start in the top five and have no crashes, please. So I, I think it's setting up some interesting dynamics within the pack. All right. That, well, you, yeah. It will be exciting. Okay. Well, you mentioned Norris. That brings us on to our next segment. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Good. Let's talk Lando Norris. We've come to think of Lando Norris as one of the most exciting 
talent to come out of Formula One, let alone British motorsport. Bradley Philpott, when, uh, when Lando Norris was about to enter into Formula One, said this exact thing. He said, Lando Norris is the most prepared Formula One driver we will ever have seen and predicted massive things for him. And now everyone is getting massively excited. The McLaren car seems to be delivering him the technology to get to the very front of the grid. He has been a thorn in the side of Sergio Perez in particular when he's been qualifying fourth and getting in there among the top four. But the recent Austrian Grand Prix getting to second place on that grid not only was another little half slap in the face to Sergio Perez because it should have been a Perez, uh, you know, a Red Bull front row lockout, but also a- another car that's preventing Mercedes getting up there and challenging Max, Max Verstappen. But Matt, we, we've been thinking of Lando Norris as this kind of superstar breakout guy. And then I was kind of reminded a little bit of his background in an article by the F1 Chronicle that was titled Lando Norris Bucks the Pay Driver Trend. And that brings up a real interesting discussion about what is a pay driver. But we do forget Lando Norris is a... a it comes from a wealthy family. He has been funded through motorsport because of who he is. But, you know, is it? it's not quite a pay driver scenario. I think it's an interesting balance because there are some people who say, well, all Formula One drivers are pay drivers because they have funding in some way. And I don't think it's as simple as that. Yeah, if if I was to draw the distinction, pay drivers are drivers who are in Formula One and have their sponsors because of the money they already have and not necessarily the results they generate. But you're not wrong to say that at a certain level, every driver starts out having to pay for everything themselves. And that naturally yields an advantage to people who have the resource to have the best (laughs) and the most from the beginning. So even Lewis Hamilton, I've said before, even Lewis Hamilton, if he was among my friends growing up, he would have been the rich kid in, in our group. By miles, not because, you know, they were particularly privileged, but because his dad cared enough to work two jobs to fund his karting. So you do need somebody to get you up on that ladder. But for me, Jules, I would put that that line for pay driver as have you got funding for what you can do or do you have funding for who you are? Yeah, or switch around. Do you have funding for what you can do? Or can you do what you do because you get the funding? And, yes. you know, and I think the, the, not, Norris, not so blatantly, but, uh, I think Stroll, uh, Latifi, I think that's a new breed of, of pay driver. Yes. Uh, I remember, uh, uh, uh Paul Belmondo in the early nineties, uh, mm-hmm. race for Pacific, I think, who was like an actor's kid, you know, and, uh, but, but apart from that, I don't think Formula One has had such blatant rich kids, you know. Well, Pedro um, Diniz obviously was, was, was in that kind of bracket as well. So yeah, we're talking about, you know, Mazepin, Latifi, Stroll, they yeah. were always going to be, to end up in F1, kind of regardless of what they did, because there was a brute force of cash behind them. And then you've got a more of a, a gray area where you've got like Paul DeResta, who is from a uh, an F1 kind of dynasty. He's, he's royalty. He's like motorsport royalty. So he's always going to get the best opportunities to, to get all the way there. But then there's kind of more grey areas like, well, for example, Matt, we've talked about Marcus Ericsson quite a lot. Now, Marcus Ericsson, 
you could argue turned out to be a Formula One dud in the end. But he had Swedish backers who wanted a Swedish F1 superstar. So Marcus Ericsson, not really a paid driver because someone saw in him that potential and they wanted to fund it because they wanted a Swedish driver. Yeah, Ericsson was not without talent. Stroll is not without talent. I think the difference between now and then, like going back to the days of gentleman drivers and and royalty just simply buying a car to race around mm-hmm. you know, 20 seconds off the back of the field, is that even for your quote-unquote pay driver, there is kind of a minimum standard. And sort of what's, if there's an interesting story to me right now, it's Mazapan, because he is... I mean, he's making the cut in terms of the cutoff times, but he looks woefully off of Schumacher, more so than I remember Stroll, early Tifi, or anyone else being. So I'm I'm curious to see, um, given his chassis complainings, exactly how much of a difference that will make when they get that sorted out, and and whether or not he can come up to this standard uh, before the end of the season, because. It's just not going to look better if he's, I mean, he's he's being lapped by his own teammates sometimes, if I'm not mistaken. So I think Jules is right to highlight those drivers as pay drivers. So they're, they're the guys I would say are pay drivers right now. Stroll has had the time and resources to get up to a good standard and credit to him for doing that. But you 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 really can't argue that in the first three, four years of his career, he wasn't pure pay driver. Mazepin, I think, and Latifi certainly uh, meet that goal. Uh, but Lando Norris has got into F1 on, on merit from the junior series. McLaren has looked at him and said, we would like you to be our driver. Here's some money in order to do that. So they've not said, OK, have an F1 seat because your dad is going to give us money. But the F1 Chronicle.com article that I'm referencing now says, says Lando is a pay driver. In fact, it's not often publicized, but his millionaire father coughed up $44 million to ensure his junior racing career. Now that is a mouth-watering amount of money. Uh, we have had we have had people on this show before that have gone through the junior categories who have said six million pounds to get all the way through to what was Formula Two. So there's a little bit of inflation there. Um, but if Lando's dad has paid forty-four million dollars, Matt, presumably that includes coaching, the best equipment making sure you've got a fleet of drivers that test Lando's engines for him in karting before he then goes and uses them in a a race. $44 million is not insubstantial at all. To get him to the point where he is now not considered a pay driver. I'm feeling bad for being old, but there there was actually a court case um, about Formula One and and the reserve drivers paying for running, and numbers came out. And... it is staggering how much people will pay just to get a single practice yeah. in, a, in a Formula One car. So $44 million over, what, five, six years? Yeah. And especially if you're talking about running an F2, which is, it, which is pretty expensive, just yeah. even though it's supposed to be cheap, it's pretty expensive on its own, right? It's not a number that surprises me. I, I knew someone one time who um, moved to Europe to go karting at the highest level. And when he found out how much it cost to go to the feeder series, it, it was too much. But he said that even in Brazil, a full season of karting at the highest level was like over a million euros yeah. a year. Yeah. It's um, like insane if you really want to be at, at the sharp end. So, Jules, what we're talking about here is is privilege a little bit. So uh, when, when you talk about like Lance Stroll, 
they paid like Anthony Davison, for example, to go and coach him in a Williams. Well, you know, Jeff from Croydon can't necessarily do that. And if you look at even Max Verstappen, you know, I'm assuming Josh Verstappen was not left destitute from his Formula One career. No, of course not. He's, uh, uh, you know, as as these things go, Jos Verstappen wasn't a, a, the greatest F1 driver, but he, 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 when you bring money as a good. driver... He was good. Let's be fair. He was good. Yeah, he, he, was, he, he, was, he was a good driver. But when you, he did have to bring his, his, his own sponsors. But when you do, you a part of the sponsor money goes to the team and a part is your salary. So we don't have to um, uh, feel sorry for any of these paid drivers, how, how good or bad they are. I remember when um, in 2013, the beginning of 2013, uh, we, I, I still worked at the, at the newspaper and we got a call. Uh, Hiro van der Gade had big news. And we uh, left, left desk uh, in the car to Amsterdam because we had an uh, we had an opportunity in, to opportunity to interview him, and that's when he announced like I'm gonna be a catering uh, driver, and um, I was with a colleague of mine, and the colleague was uh, like uh, not very well into Formula One, so he had all these you know regular questions, and I just wanted to like okay how did you get how did, did you get to drive yeah uh, what, what did mcgregor the the clothing company uh bring it is mcgregor going to be on the car mm. uh, like it was in your formula two car and so um it's and, and, and you and, you put those questions to him to guido yeah yeah and of course he he it, it, it wasn't a mcgregor store uh, like a, a clothing company and um and, and i and i wanted to know these things you know and and wh- <laughs> how, how what are your chances are you going to be in uh, for the whole season what what does it cost and uh, he of course didn't, didn't really want to go into detail <laughs> about that but it 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 uh, appeared to me um how how much work he put in to get from formula 2 to formula 1 yeah. um and how he had to scrape for, uh, um uh, so so to say to, to collect all this money and, and get the nod from a team like Caterham, who probably have like 10 drivers lined up just waiting who's the first one to, to bring that bag of money, you know? Yeah. And I think this, um, okay, th- that leads us to what position are the teams in when they pick their drivers? And we had a great question from Nick in our patron Slack group as well, who is a long-suffering Williams fan, and he would love to discuss... Uh, a little bit about their improvement since their change of ownership. Now then, Matt, I'm focusing on you here. We, I remember being in a, a summer fate, and I'd missed qualifying because I'm supporting wife and daughter performing at a summer fate, and uh, I was having an argument with you, and it got very, very heated about Williams and their qualifying performance because I was getting very upset that they had Stroll and Sorokin at the time, and I'm, I'm seeing them go out in Q1 time after time after time. And I'm like, there's no way that car is as bad as, as it seems because they have chosen to take on two paid drivers. Two decent drivers could make this car a Q, a Q1 car, a Q2, Q3 car. And uh, I am going to say that because of five years later, George Russell getting it to Q3 one time, uh, that proves that I was definitely right five years ago or whenever we had that argument. I don't bear a grudge. It's not like I'm, it's not like I'm sitting here stewing the whole time, but I was definitely right. 
because of course the car they're driving now <laughs> yes, is exactly, it's exactly the same exactly five the same. years ago. Yeah. If you wanted, if you want to do an interesting thought experiment though, uh, let's change up Williams for Haas. Is there any driver on the grid you think that could put Haas into Q2 or Q3? Now, okay, that's a good question. I'm glad you've put that uh, to, to me. So Mazepin, I believe, is off pace right now. Yeah. For all the promise, I know Uncle Joe says that Mazepin had a lot of talent right now. We're not seeing it. So I'm looking at Mick Schumacher. If Mick Schumacher is somehow the real deal, and in my mind, him being in, in F1 through through essentially the, the, the romantic story of succession, which happens. He, he, he might well turn out to be brilliant, in which case I'll eat my words, that's fine. But when you see a, a driver of a, of a formula, you know, a son of a, formula, a former F1 driver come through, you go, well, statistically, they were more likely to be pre-selected for F1. So my hopes and expectation for Mick Schumacher are reduced. Even if he is good, he's not going to be immediately good now because he's a rookie. So yes, I will absolutely say there is definitely more potential in the Haas car than it is showing on track now. Is that fair? Uh, I don't think so, because neither okay. Grosjean nor Magnussen could, could get it out of <laughs> Q1 for the most part last season. Okay. And well, maybe this, this Haas car is way better than that Haas car, to use your own argument against you. I, I think it's I think it's more the car. I think the driver can bring something to yeah, it in terms of attracting well. the maximum potential. But I yeah. don't think the potential of the car to get out of Q1 for the most part exists. Okay, but let's let's bring this back to Williams then. Okay, they got a on merit, not fluky Q3. That car's it's all right. It's good. It's a midfield car. It's back. Uh, it's it's on a good day at the right circuit. <laughs> well, it's going to be 10th if something happens to some of the cars ahead of them. Okay. And I think that point was made very... Okay, okay, but... By Alonso. There was no good track, good circumstances for Sorokin or Stroll to get that Williams into Q3, was there? So there yeah. must be an improvement. It must be better. Jules, back me up. It must be better. I'm going to back you up. I think I think it is better. I think uh, it's not easy after the takeover to immediately uh, see a, a gain of quality, but I think for Williams it will be it will be so crucial for next year to either re, re, keep uh, Russell in the car or replace him with uh, a proven driver because next year with all the new regulations is going to be a big chance to make that big leap like McLaren made uh, uh, like two three seasons ago um, where they belong we all think and feel um, and it's going to be crucial for them to not uh, end up in the Haas pit the Haas pitfall uh, ending up with <laughs> two drivers like this you need a benchmark yeah, you man. need a, a, a driver exactly what like you say who can show you what the max of that car is what do you reckon then Matt Bottas and who next season now they've got uh, I, they've got cash Joe said they've got cash yeah well and and let's be clear there's a difference between saying Williams is a midfield car and saying Williams has made no improvement they've made vast improvement they are they are troubling the alphas on a good day and like I said, in the right circumstance, in the right track, they will score points. And as Russell clearly demonstrated, especially in qualifying, they can get pretty far up the grid. It's a better qualifier than a race car right now, but they're closing that gap. That's what I see. They're bringing developments. And I think Summers and I might talk about mm -hmm. that 
on Sunday's show a bit more in depth as well. Okay, Sunday's show will feature Matt and Summers talking about tech, tire square, all that kind of thing. That's Matthew Summerfield, by the way, at Summers F1 on Twitter. He is like, he's the best F1 tech journalist there is right now out there. I'll stand by that. Fight me. Fight me if you disagree. Oh, yeah, I know Scarbs is good. Scarbs is wonderful. But Summers is the guy right now bringing that F1 technology uh, knowledge to motorsport.com. That's a big deal. And he sits down and speaks to Matt Trumpets on Mr. Apex podcast. We also will be bringing you uh, an interview with an F1 commentator. And I'm hoping that will be the first of two F1 commentators that will speak to us during between now and the end of the summer break. Uh, we are also going to be having a chat with a... V- well, this is exciting, Matt. I don't want to give away too much, but we're going to be speaking to someone who was at director level from the start of the Liberty Media F1 takeover uh, till about a year ago, which, which, by the way, means NDAs have expired. Hey. Yeah, man. Can't wait. Be, this is exciting. That's going to be lit. It that's is. going to be good. Okay, good. So look forward to Sunday's show, which will be a pre-recorded segment as well. Uh, where do we want to go? Where do we, we've got about 10 minutes. What do we want to cover here? I think I want to look at... We said this was going to be a triple header review, which we've completely failed to do entirely. But I think because, Jules, the, the reason why you don't need kind of in-depth analysis is because, well, Red Bull and Max Verstappen bossed this from start to finish. Like, this was a, a triple whooping yeah it was and if you even look uh, further back than the last three races uh, max Verstappen he's either been second or first apart from baku obviously and uh, i think no one really expected them to uh to turn the screws on merck uh, this much and yeah, yeah and and even uh if they do uh the last three races uh lewis hamilton has been just you know not there uh not totally his fault but he's not uh, limiting damage at the moment for various reasons and um it's been a long time since he uh, since he had such a big deficit uh, to the, to uh, to in the championship you might have touched on something a little bit worrying there which is hamilton has been fine hamilton has been fairly hamilton and actually th- there's been very little frustration coming out of him because paul ricard not really on him, a bit of strategy. Uh, uh, Steinmark Grand Prix, the pace just wasn't there. And then, uh, and then, and then, uh, you know, a little bit of damage which takes him out of the Austrian Grand Prix, but he probably wouldn't have been up to speed anyway. So the frightening thing is, Hamilton hasn't, he, he didn't drop it like in Imola, yet still, there's just no answer. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's almost like, like, he knows there's still still a lot to come, but then on the other hand, he claims that the upgrades coming for Silverstone are not gonna yeah. gonna close the gap. So right, I but you know he's he's so experienced, of course, and he and he you know he's often quoted saying like it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, etc. But we're nine races uh, uh, on the go um, into the season, and like we said in the beginning of the show, we don't actually know how long this season is going to be, how many races <laughs> there are going to be. So, you know, with uh, with um, the deficit he has right now, something needs to happen because right now Merck are, are getting yeah. whacked uh, left, right and centre. So there was some talk of the upgrades. We, we sort of alluded to Toto seeming quite bullish in their post-race interviews, Matt. I, we don't have many contacts. We're not as hooked up as 
like racer.com or whatever or uh, the uh, the sweary one but uh, the one of the key engine guys i know who's worked in a couple of engine departments has said to me that the mercedes upgrades are being downplayed so if you want a little bit of hope as a, a little bit of hope as a mercedes or hamilton fan that's what i'm getting is that it's just been a little bit downplayed they're keeping a little bit under the hood and they really do have stuff coming it's just a bit disheartening that we didn't see anything between Austria 1 and Austria 2. And and you can understand that because, like, Austria 1 happened. Any reaction to the shock of how much they were getting whooped there, it was never going to be the next weekend. No, and it fits with the larger Mercedes strategy in which they sort of set their course. And, all right, this is complicated. Um, I will try to make it brief and understandable. That's okay. People like it when you say things. It's fine. But if we're going to go back and talk about a tale of two teams. Okay. I didn't know you were going to go back and make it a story. I didn't realize that. Things to consider in terms of Red Bull is everyone's focusing on the quote unquote upgrade. But really what it is, is after they developed a problem in the very first race, they've essentially had their power unit turned down. So this whole stretch where Mercedes has looked there or thereabouts with Red Bull, has been them with the power unit turned slightly down. With the upgrade, it's gone back up. So we're beginning to see the true pace that Red Bull thought they would have from the beginning of the season. And at that same time, they are bringing truckloads, I'm talking about van loads of new parts to every single race. Mercedes had decided that their car was going to be close enough to win They set up a development pipeline. They had their ideas. They showed up and the car was, in their own words, a bit of a diva. And this has impacted their whole plan for the season because they they had already shifted over to looking at 2022 in a lot of ways. So they have been very much playing catch up and had made the decision early on to try and find gains through setup and not through bringing fans full of new parts every race because they want to spend that money elsewhere. This has complicated their ability to catch up with Red Bull. How much they're back on course, I think is what we're going to see when the new parts arrive. So we all know that I've, I'm definitely like fully unbiased. And I've, I've never declared like, I want one person to win over another, which is why Sky Sports or any other major outlet should definitely hire me. So we're there. Yeah. Totally unbiased. Yeah. You- so, given the going, you can continue. If you if you feel I am biased, you can you can out me. I don't mind. No. You, the funny thing is, I, I, I you know I would take that shot if I actually <laughs> felt like it was true. You are a fan of people, but you are never biased in your assessments about oh. where they are. No, oh, thank you. In fact, I am possibly harsher on the the. It hurt me, by the way. The last weekend with Perez, and we had to oh, sit, we had to sit there and analyze like, those three events. I'm like, oh. yeah, that was his fault, like in all of <laughs> in all of them, because especially as like they were so compared so directly, it would be easy to go, oh well, he was at fault for the Norris one, but he wasn't at fault for the others, or, or vice versa. When I really looked deeply at it, I came to the realization, no, nope, he overdrew it in the Norris one, and then he understeered in the Leclerc one, and then he shoved Leclerc wide. At turn six as well. That, and that is a hard, that's quite a hard thing to do. So, okay, I'll take some props if, if there's any coming for that. But it hurt. Just know that it hurt. Yep. And fair play to you for being able to separate the two. Okay. And my main thing is, though, that I, I do genuinely wish Lewis Hamilton well. And it might be a default as a British sports fan. I cheered for Henman 
on Henman Hill. You know, I, I, oh, come on, Tim. That's what we used to do. And then I even cheered when Canadian Greg Rosetsky decided he was British for a couple of months. And, and that was fine too. And I don't mind cheering on my team. And uh, it's definitely, it's coming home, Jules, whatever you say. Like, I know that hurts because, you know, because the Netherlands is out. It's quite a while ago they were out. So, yes, I don't mind having that default, that default thing. So if you want to have a, a bit of hope for Lewis Hamilton, if you're listening to this as a Hamilton fan and you want a bit of hope, I genuinely have belief that Mercedes and Hamilton have got a resurgence coming. You know, this season has already ebbed and flowed. We saw Mercedes looking on top at the beginning. We've seen Grand Prix that were even, that Red Bull have won on strategy. We've seen uh, we've seen Grand Prix where Red Bull have won because Perez had was there as the second driver holding off Lewis Hamilton, which Verstappen should have won. But I still think there's another ebb to come. And I just I just don't think this championship is is done. And I feel like we've got a weight of evidence, Matt, that says, actually, Mercedes can come back when they realise they've misjudged the start of the season. We've got that fight against Ferrari as massive proof of that. And I just feel like there's more to come. Yeah, uh, there absolutely is, I would say. And certainly I feel like one of the biggest mistakes all Formula One fans and analysts tend to make is that a single Formula One weekend generates so much data and information. We begin to substitute the race we just watched for an entire season. Yeah, we extrapolate, we, we over-extrapolate. Yeah, and we've seen two at the same track that really does favor Red Bull over Mercedes rather a lot. And last of all, you just look back at history, and as far as Mercedes go, you just have to say, well, ignore them at your peril. <laughs> Because they have a pretty long history of sorting things out and they have the expertise and the weight of all those years as champions still on their side. Jules, how is it looking in, uh, in the Netherlands? Uh, are expectations being managed? Are they saying, well, it's going well so far, but you never know, Hamilton and Mercedes might bite back or is it done and dusted? Um, it's definitely not, uh, oh, let's be careful here. Uh, it's still a long <laughs> season. I mean, this, this is the, the, the promise be that had been made uh, a couple of years ago. Max Verstappen will be world champion, uh, coming true right now. So, um, now there's lots of emphasis <laughs> on his, uh, on his, uh, the way he, he won, uh, the last two weekends, the, the, yeah. the might, the, the, uh, yeah, it, 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 how strong he looked. It's uh, it's very much about that, and um, of course the, the the people see two home races uh, coming up for him, uh, the Netherlands and Belgium, um, and especially after the, the the Orange Army in in Austria, that it it, it only uh, makes him feel like oh, it's really going to happen. But <laughs> um, thing is, really, with Max in Belgium, that he's not done that well at all over there. Um, I think he raced there five times, three, four, five, five times, uh, and retired in three. Had a P11 one time. So it's it, although it, it's his home race, um, it's not that necessarily uh, uh, going to be a win for him. And uh, that goes for a couple of, of other races as well that's still to come. Of course, Mexico and Brazil have been good to him, but um, for instance, uh, Monza, uh, Russia. 
Belgium have been Merck tracks uh, uh, for the last couple of years. So I definitely agree with uh, with Matt. Um, maybe Merck have been taken by surprise a bit how soon their current car would run out uh, compared to Red Bull. But uh, yeah, if, and if anyone has proven in recent history that, that they can uh, develop and come back, uh, it's them. So um, yeah, I'm very much looking forward <laughs> to uh, to the coming races. I wonder if we might have a little bit of reversal of fortune of what we've traditionally thought, which is, well, okay, Mercedes are winning on the power tracks. What what Red Bull seem to have been doing, Matt, recently is, well, they can strip a little bit of downforce off because they're, I think, infamous and tr- traditional mechanical grip. Like They always seem to have been better at mecha- mechanical grip like Sector 3 Barcelona and uh, also in Monaco, that has allowed them to kind of run a bit of a lower downforce. And now that Honda are basically on par with the Mercedes engine, that seems to be the thinking, they can... Uh, yeah, so so if there's no big sweeping corners, if it's kind of stop-and-go sweeping, uh, stop-and-go uh, uh, tracks like Baku, you know, they can have the mechanical grip and the advantage. Silverstone may be a little different. Lots of big sweeping turns. You need that kind of downforce performance. And perhaps that might also be true at Hungara Ring, at Spa Francorchamps, etc. Well, I would actually, um, my considerations, I think you're on the right track. As far as right. Honda goes, I think they have a wider operating range for that engine. They can run it hotter, longer, and that lets them go faster, which means they can run less aero and develop the same amount of downforce. But I think where you're actually going to see the biggest differences is between circuits that are more front-limited versus circuits that are more rear-limited. Red Bull Ring is a rear-limited track. And and Red Bull do especially well at those. It's also a high altitude track where Honda, as a power unit, has always done well. Uh, sorry, sorry, rear limited. That means so. I think that I think we're kind of agreeing loudly here. So a rear limited track would would uh, would uh, be better. Sorry, if you don't suffer on a rear limited track, that means it's the kind of tracks where you have to stop and get on the power at slower speed and not like spin your wheels up kind of thing. So if you've got good mechanical grip, you can get out those corners. So uh, Austria, Baku, there's lots of corners where you're slowing down for very slow speed in low gears and having to get on the power. Yeah, Yeah. really what it comes down to, I read an explanation of it, um, possibly on Reddit. But it it really just comes, or Evelyn Technical maybe, I don't know, it just comes down to sort of the radius of the corners on the track and whether you're steering more with your throttle or, or using your brakes more to get into the corner. Uh, but you don't need to worry about that. Circuits are generally front-limited or rear-limited, and the evidence, I think, shows Red Bull are doing better on rear-limited, which is why we see Mercedes having trouble at those kinds of tracks. Okay, so, it just so, means the rear tires give up first or the front tires okay, give so up first. Rear-limited, good for Red Bull. Yeah. Front-limited, good for Mercedes. That's correct. And I think that goes all the way back to the change in the aero regulations, which I think... Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can talk about that on Tech Time. All right, fine. I'm I'm getting to a specific point here. Silverstone, front limited, rear limited. Um, I think I looked it up. I think it's it's front limited. So that should suit Mercedes. Uh, What's coming up? Hungaro ring. Also front. Yeah. Yeah. I have a chart somewhere, but I've not put it in. (laughs) Because we didn't know we were going to talk about this. Spa, spa. So front limited as well. Spa, lots of big sweeping turns. Puan. For example, yeah. okay, and, and yeah. a rouge. Okay, yeah. good. All right, there you go. Well, let's do a whole segment at some point where we talk about what's front limited and rear limited. 
Okay. Okay, good. We're out of time now, though. So uh, let's say, uh, please follow our panel, which is... <laughs> sorry, Jules, we got sucked into some tech time there. Uh, you are at Jules Sagers F1 yep. on Twitter. Correct. Okay, good. Tweet more stuff. Tweet some hot takes and we'll retweet you from the Missed Apex account. Will do. Be more aggressive. Be like, oh, Max Verstappen's not that good and I'm Dutch. Be more Orange Army-like. <laughs> exactly. Flares. Just videos of you with flares everywhere. So <laughs> at Jules Sagers F1. Follow Matt at MattPT55. Yep. Because you did cycling once. I did. Mm. I did cycling once. I, the Tour de France is on, by the way, if you want to I go watch it. I exposed my children to a, year, uh, to a stage of Tour de France. Very interesting to see uh, how the sprinters took over, to see someone try and break away from the peloton and then every time get swallowed up uh, except for when they don't it's a it's a it's a high reward uh, it's a high risk high reward kind of scenario if you're going to be the guy who rides off the front and tries to stay away to the end a hundred percent of the times i've watched it they've been caught uh, I, i've watched more and occasionally they do get away but it is definitely the exception not the rule are you suggesting that my experience of the tour de france is statistically irrelevant I'm just saying your uh, your data, your in isn't big enough yet. Fair enough. And also follow Matt's wife at A Weaver Writes. She writes books. You'll enjoy them. You should go buy them. Fund Matt's dream of owning a Ferrari and being independently wealthy so he can just do Miss Apex stuff. Yes, please do that. Because <laughs> yeah, at some point, <laughs> at some point, I'm going to have to earn more money. Uh, and uh, all the links to everything that we talk about is always in the show notes below in YouTube. If it's on YouTube, just please like and subscribe. That really, really helps us. If you're an audio listener as well, yeah, subscribe on your podcatcher of choice so that you download the shows straight away. That really helps us in the iTunes charts as well to be really kind of targeted on that Monday morning. Uh, we have got up to the top 50 in the US charts, top 25 on Spotify for sports podcasts as well. And that's down to you guys. So please do leave us a review wherever you can. Uh, feel free to attack Matt Trumpets, uh, comment on his physical features, but five stars. So it could be five stars. Uh, Matt Trumpets looks like a turnip. As long as it's five stars, the algorithm just does not care. You can follow me as well at Spanners Ready. Yeah, that'll work. And the show at Missed Apex F1 on Facebook. You can be my friend by searching for Richard Ready too. Until we see you next, uh, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. Oh, that was good, Matt. Without the live stream, we were able to pause and have a, a, a comfort break, and no yeah. one was any the wiser. That was that was awesome. Yeah, we uh, should incorporate that. We need like full adverts that we run. Uh, Do you watch Rick and Morty? Occasionally. Oh yeah, we should have like a interdimensional TV breaks. So we pre-record before the show. We like pre-record you and me just doing like ridiculous improv. <gasps> or we should play the videos I've been making, which are uh, questions that are easily answered by nearby signs. Yeah. You should play those. Those would be perfect. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. I recorded a new one today. Which really? was, we walked past a sign that said, uh, don't feed the horses. Your kindness could kill them. So I was walking along. I took a video of me going, oh, look, there's some horses. I should be kind to them. I, I wonder what the consequences of that would be. And then I zoom in on the, the sign that says your kindness could kill the horses. And then I go back to me going, Oh, hello, horses. Here comes my kindness. 
what's the worst that could happen? And then it will, you know, then it will cut to questions that are easily answered by nearby signs. And that's how I've been spending my time since quitting engineering. Uh, that sounds good. Although we, we, although what that really makes me think of is at the very end of it, you should just put a quick Photoshop of Carlos Sainz's head somewhere in the background. Like a reverse mafia thing. Yeah. Well, like Carlos Sainz. Like you pronounce the name the same. It's like a visual pun. Or one day one, one, it becomes the biggest TikTok account ever and Carlos Sainz gloms onto that and he guest stars but next time I'll go like, oh, I wonder what the maximum bridge height, I wonder what the maximum height of a vehicle through this bridge could be. And then you would get Carlos Sainz going 4.5 meters. And then there would be questions that are easily answered by nearby Carlos Sainz. That would be, <laughs> that would be, the, do, you, do you think you'll ever agree to that? I don't know. He seems to have a bit of a sense yeah, of humor. If he maybe. thinks it's funny enough, he might. He might. We'll have to put it to Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.